Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, actor Mayim Bialik. Mayim is most famous for her roles on Blossom and Big Bang Theory, but she also has a PhD in neuroscience and a new TV show called Call Me Cat. And the woman loves a pickle. I like anything pickled. Like I almost chose a meal of all my favorite pickled things, but a pickled tomato is very, very special. So I welcome two pickle experts to the show, Jan Davison, author of Pickles, A Global History, and Alan Kaufman, who has been hand-making pickles the old world way for 40 years. Alan owns the Pickle Guys, located in the country's pickle capital the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I'm assuming you grew up in New York. Yes, I yeah. did. You can't tell from my Robert De Niro accent. I know. I love it. It's so comforting to me. You're talking to me? You're talking to me? I know you guys. <laughs> but first, my conversation with Mayim Bialik. In 1991, I was introduced to Maya Bialik through her starring role in the TV show Blossom. First of all, I'm very excited to chat with you. Of course, you are a big part of my childhood. And I have this group of friends. We've been doing this thing that we very creatively call TV Club for nine years. Uh, we've had to take the last year off. But we watch 80s and 90s sitcoms, and then we make punned dishes to go with it. So wow, <laughs> I wanted to tell you what we made when we watched Blossom because I felt like I had to share this with you. Um, awesome blossoms, of course. Yes, makes sense. Mayan Bialis, which is like obvious. I get it. Sloppy okay. Joey's, which I made. Yes. That. <laughs> and blood dim sum. Okay, that's cute. Yeah, it's cute, right? Some yeah. pretty good choices. I think. Oh, and burrito woes was one of them as well. Guys, just the hits keep coming they over there. Keep coming, yeah. Mayam played Blossom, a teenage girl who lived with her dad and brothers. So I wanted to ask you, because we actually started from the beginning and watched the first episode, and I didn't remember that you got your period in the first yes. episode. What was that like for you as a person playing that role at that age to get your period on TV in your first episode? Um, well, I did not have my period in real life, actually, for many years um, after that. I was a very late bloomer. Obviously, at the time, it was considered very risque, and you know there was a lot of discussion. The fact that we were doing a network television show about a girl was already very, quote, problematic. You know, like, who's going to watch this, and why would anybody want to watch a girl? Like, it just... People forget what it was like, you know, in the late 80s when when these kinds of things, you know, were they were very surprising to to feature a girl like that. So then to tackle something that's so iconic as like a female thing that we don't talk about. Yeah. I mean, that was the bravery of Don Rio, who was our creator and, you know, our showrunner. He really believed, um, you know, he's a dad and he really believed in showing these parts of the human experience from a female perspective. It was very ahead of its time, we like to say. And I feel like you don't really even see it now. I mean, it's still something that people don't. No, people don't want to talk about no. it. And also like the emphasis. And it's funny as like a 45 year old woman who like, you know, has lived life in this body and like I've had two kids like I'm used to talking about everything but there's mm -hmm. still this squeamishness of like hide it then there's these undies so that no one will see so you can still wear your thong like thong pads exist maxi pads that you put around a thong it's like come on people <laughs> no. this is the time of the month to wear your shoes 
undies. Yes. You don't need to wear a thong right now. Just take a couple days off. (laughs) Put on the granny panties. Pads fit so much better on a regular (laughs) pair of undies. That's true. That makes me think of that SNL sketch where it was like thong diapers. You remember that? Yeah. (laughs) Baby thongs. So of course you were acting when you were young and then you went to school for a long time and got your PhD, but then you returned to acting and I'm curious why you did that. Um, I had a, an infant and a toddler and I was running out of health insurance. That's the God's honest truth. Wow. Um, my, my then husband were divorced now, but we were married at the time he was in grad school. And also, you know, our insurance only lasts so long once we finish our, our degrees. So I wish there was a more glamorous story, but the fact is as a young, just postgraduate student, um, I figured if I can just act in even a couple jobs, I would be able to get my SAG after insurance, which is very good insurance. So I just started auditioning for things, you know, I, I did an episode of Bones, an episode of Saving Grace, and then I was called into audition for a show that I had never seen called The Big Bang Theory. And, you know, nine years later, you know, here we are. Stars, they're just like us. They need insurance. That's right. <laughs> it's so interesting, too. I read that you said it was a more stable job than being a professor, uh, which really surprised me because I'd never thought that acting was something that had great hours. Well, um, look, being an employed actress on a sitcom is very predictable hours mm-hmm. if you have kids. Okay. Um, being, being a struggling actor, not predictable, not good hours. Yeah. Being in a single cam or a drama, not good hours. But sitcom in particular, you know, on Big Bang Theory, we were home by five. You've been vegetarian and then vegan since you were 19. Could you tell your story of how you got there? Oh, and also before that, to kind of go back earlier in your food life, I heard you say that you were raised on a sad diet. Can you define that? Yeah, this is a term that um, our pediatrician calls the standard American diet. It's a sad diet. Um, And I don't mean to be ungrateful for the way that I was raised. My mom's a first generation American, so very heavy Eastern European, Jewish kind of cuisine and culture. Um, And, you know, every meal did have like a meat, a potato, a vegetable. She did a very good job. My mom was also like a hippie before, you know, it was hip. Uh, We ate like rice cakes and carrots and, you know, like that was our snacks and we couldn't have sugar cereal. So my mom did a really good job, but also like I, we didn't, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. So a lot of meals were meant to spread, you know, like, you know, pasta with ground beef, like, because that's something that would like, it would go a long way. And so, you know, we did a lot of meals that go a long way as a kid. I never felt comfortable eating animals and I didn't know that there was a way to not eat animals is kind of the simplest (laughs) way to explain my journey. I was just that kid who like, it felt weird. I like animals so much that I don't like this, but the answer was kind of like, eat what's on your plate. Like it's not even a conversation. I was raised kosher. My mom was raised Orthodox. And so that was one of the things I grew up with two sets of dishes. But then when I was about, I don't know, somewhere around eight or 10, uh, my mom decided to stop being kosher and like sent a letter to the whole family about how she was no longer keeping to diets. I mean, like, I don't think anyone was asking, but it was like part of her rebellion, I think. Yeah. Anyway. Um, interesting people, my parents, but, um, I did, uh, maintain kind of kosher style. Like I didn't eat pork. I didn't mix, you know, dairy and meat. So I kind of continued that through junior high and high school. But when I left my parents home, like when I went to college at 19, I became vegetarian and I felt much better. I felt better emotionally. Like I wasn't always like feeling guilty and weird and And um, one of the things that had plagued me my whole life was a runny nose and sinus infections. And I went to just like a checkup, like when I was a freshman at UCLA and the doctor was like, have you ever heard about cutting back on dairy? I was like, no. 
I eat dairy all the time. I'm made of cottage cheese. Like I ate so much cottage cheese. <laughs> they suggested I just like try cutting back. And what I ended up finding out is that I'm allergic to dairy. It makes me sneeze. It makes me produce mucus. Like that's a thing. It's science. I don't have stomach problems from dairy, which most people have because we're actually not made to digest the milk of another animal. Um, but my sinus infections went away and I wasn't on antibiotics every three minutes. Like it was incredible. I read Jonathan Safran Foyer's book, uh, Eating Animals. Mm -hmm. And that's really more of an ethical and environmental and economic argument against the way that we store and produce food. And that was like, as I say, the nail in the coffin for eggs. And so now, you know, instead of like drawing the line, there is no line. I don't have to know which line to cross. And if you are still kosher, because I know you're modern Orthodox, uh -huh. that makes it so easy because there's nothing to separate. You're not eating meat or right. milk. So I, I have one set of dishes. I used to have two. Um, also, I, I choose to eat out, you know, whereas a lot of like modern Orthodox people won't eat unless the restaurant is kosher. I do eat out at restaurants. You know, there's always a risk. You know, I've ordered vegan pizza and it has come with a piece of ham on it because because <laughs> it happens like just, you know, like at a pizza place, like they actually, you know, they grab for the pineapple or whatever it is. And there's a piece of ham that snuck in. And so like that stuff happens. And that's a risk that I do take as a vegan and as a kosher person. And my kids are also vegan and they have, you know, thick hair and rosy cheeks and meat on their bones Aww. and they're, they're fine. They grew up. People are like, it's criminal to raise kids vegan. It's really not. <laughs> no, there's something very comedic about the word ham. I don't know why. Like when you said ham, I laughed. It makes me think of Arrested Development, that hot ham water. Right. Like yeah. you said that, imagine ham just like falling from the sky of that pizza. Well, it landed on my, on my pizza. It did. It's raining ham. It's the alternate to it's raining men. <laughs> All right, my little Hamalima ding-dongs. We're going to take just a quick break. But when we return, Mayim reveals her last meal. And like so many vegans who have been guests on the show before her, Mayim's last meal is a true fantasy, a beloved dish from her past eating life. question of the show what would your last meal be okay i'm so excited oh good first of all this sounded really depressing at first and i got really sad about it oh, and i would like i wouldn't be me to not acknowledge that we are talking about something that you know is is a real thing on death row yeah like i i just have to like say that like that brought like oh my gosh this is so strange and how do i feel about it but I do love this notion of kind of like isolating what's the thing, you know, like what's the food that makes me really say like that would be my last meal. So the answer is pumpkin mezzalune from Ca del Sole, which is an Italian, Northern Italian restaurant in Los Angeles, pickled tomatoes and a Coke with ice. All together? I want it all. Like, well... <laughs> So like the mezzalune, which is basically like half raviolis, you know, they look like little half moons. The mezzalune have pumpkin inside with like a, like a almost burnt sage on top. Yeah. Do they veganize it for you? No. I have to dream about it in ways that I never can have it anymore. It is not vegan, correct. Okay. But if it were my last meal, that's what I'd be having. And then pickled tomatoes, just, I love pickled tomatoes. I like anything pickled. Like I almost chose a meal of all my favorite pickled things, um, but a pickled tomato is very, very special. And then a Coke on the side. So what kind of ice do you like in your Coke? Um, not crushed, square cubes, 
square cubes okay. and a lot, but don't skimp on the Coke. Like I still want the full amount that is due to me. For her last meal, Maya wants the Mezzaluna Bezuka Baruca from the West Hollywood restaurant Ca del Sole, which is described on the menu as half moon shaped pasta filled with pumpkin, butter, sage sauce and Parmesan cheese. She wants an ice cold Coke and pickled tomatoes. So I want to hear more about the pickled tomatoes. Do you make your own or do you buy them? I don't think I've ever had it before. Oh my gosh. So a pickled tomato is like a very, it's a very specific Eastern European delicacy that we like. Are they green? They're green. Okay. brown tomato. They can be small, like they can be tangerine size, um, but think more small orange. So a little bigger. So yeah, it's usually sliced in eighths. They're firm. They're not soft. Mm -hmm. So it tastes like a sour pickle, not like a dill pickle. It's a little sour. Like it's a little bit of an effort to eat that pickled tomato. I'm one of the only people that I know who likes them as much as I do. (laughs) I mean, I'll eat more than one full at a sitting, but it's like my favorite thing to do when you're like hanging out after dinner to just work on a pickled tomato, just eighth by eighth. It does taste particularly good with like potato chips and whatever sandwich you're eating. You can buy them in jars. They're typically not as good as when you get them in a deli. In your finer delis, they will slice them and put them on the table. It's appetizing, we call it in Yiddish. You don't order them at delis. They just come on the table. There's usually sauerkraut, pickles, and pickled tomatoes. I can relate. My dad was born in Romania and grew up in Israel. And so growing up in my house, every time we had... We always had pickles. And it's like that moment where you realize that people don't eat like you, you know, you're so insulated because when friends would come over, they're like, why do you have pickles every time there's mashed potatoes? (laughs) And I'm like, because those two things go together, but I guess they don't, people don't do that. No, but I mean, also like I have a lot of family in Israel and I feel so at home there with my pickle issue Yes, because well, pickled turnips you'll often get with falafel. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes they're spicy. I don't really like spicy pickled cabbage obviously, yes. is something to enjoy. There's something called a tamale. That's right, folks. It's a pickled cherry tomato. You know that that's one of my favorite things because I like small things and I like pickled <laughs> things. And tamales, we, my mom and I, I mean, we were obsessed with them. We used to get them. They came in jars and it said tamales, but then the place we got them stopped carrying them. And I have not seen a pickled cherry tomato. Oh, it's so freaking cute. But they would come like they're olive size and you could put them in a martini if you're feeling frisky. I like really any pickled vegetable. I like pickled carrots. Yeah, those are kind of my top pickled items. Have you had pickled okra? That is my new obsession over the pandemic. No, I have had pickled okra and it's delightful. Humans have been making and eating pickles for thousands of years. They were invented out of necessity to preserve food from going bad. But people fell in love with the sour crunch. And even in ancient times, it was considered a delicious way to add an acidic punch to a meal. I think pickles are just such a fascinating food. I mean, they have, first of all, such a long history. And they're also a truly global food. There isn't any country or any culture that doesn't pickle something in some way. That's Jan Davison, author of Pickles, A Global History. A pickle is any food that is preserved in brine, usually packed in salt or vinegar. Jan says the first recorded mention of pickling goes back 9,000 years 
where it was found in a book of poems from ancient China. Known as the Book of Odes, the poem itself is very short. In the midst of the fields are the huts, along the boundaries and balks are goods. He dries them, pickles them, and offers them to his great forefathers. That's the first known reference we have to actually the first pickles. And certainly we know from other official documents of the time, going right back into the Zhu dynasty around 1000 BCE, that there was particular superintendents who were employed at the royal palaces actually to make sure that the emperors had enough pickles to eat with every meal, to be enjoyed and to basically lift and excite the sort of the appetite. So they pickled meat, they pickled fish, they pickled pork and tripe, bamboo shoots, turnips, anything that could be put into a jar with salt was pickled at the time. Records of the building of the Great Wall actually mention that thousands and thousands of conscripts that were tasked with building the wall were actually given rations of fermented vegetables, and these were likely to be turnip and cabbage that had actually been fermented in, in brine. From China, pickles spread to Korea and Japan. Even today, East Asia really is the powerhouse of pickles. I mean, Japan has thousands of types of pickles. Korea has over 150 types of kimchi that we know. Pickles also developed in the Middle East. So one of the other earlier records is in Mesopotamia. Um, we've got clay tablets, which are over 4,000 years old, and they include recipes. Jan says those recipes and concepts made their way to Persia, then to the Arabs, onto North Africa, and then to Spain. India was also an early adapter of pickling, and the cuisine is still famous for its vast diversity of pickles. And I think the pickle that we probably think of most is mango pickle. In India in particular, they like their Chilies pickled, limes, tamarinds, aubergines, cauliflower, fish, chicken, shrimps and prawns, all are pickled. They tend to do a very different sort of pickling. Their pickles are actually made in mustard or sesame oil. These jars are actually left in the, the sun. The light and the heat of the sun actually destroy the bacteria and any microbes that would normally cause the food to, to perish. So yeah, there are all kinds of pickles. You can pickle anything. But in the U.S., when a menu says you're getting a pickle with your sandwich, we know it's going to be the pickled cucumber. Jan says pickles came over to the United States with the earliest European settlers. And since the 1600s, New York City has been the American ground zero for pickling. And that really started because on Long Island, the Spanish started growing cucumbers in the late 1600s. And then what do you do with cucumbers? You pickle them. And so that's really where um, New York City got its great tradition of pickling from. The New York Food Museum says Dutch immigrants also grew cucumbers in Brooklyn, pickled them and sold them. They say the word pickle comes from the Dutch word pekel, which means brine. So that was the first wave of pickles. But when Eastern European Jews immigrated to the U.S. during World Wars I and II, they brought their pickles to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. These are the dill pickles the U.S. is known for. The turn of the 20th century was the golden age of pickles in New York, and especially in the Lower East Side. At one point, there were so many pickle vendors that there were 80 pickle peddlers on Essex Street alone. 
I grew up on the end of a cul-de-sac in a boring Bay Area suburb, so I always thought that my mom had the most romantic childhood. She grew up in the Bronx and in Brooklyn in the 1950s, and she said she would ask her mom for, I don't know, 10 cents, a quarter, whatever, and she would walk down the street to buy a big fat dill pickle out of a barrel. Sometimes when I tell people this, they don't believe me. They think it's just something that you would see in a movie. Alan Kaufman grew up in the same New York that my mom did. I would like to say it's before my time, but it really wasn't. I, I used to come down on the Lower East Side when to buy clothes. I'd see the old man sitting on the, on the wooden milk crate with his arm around a wooden barrel. And you want a pickle? He'd stick his hand in no glove or anything right up to his elbow and give you a pickle. And we used to buy sauerkraut and it would be in a paper cone. And you would eat it like, you know, like an ice cream. 40 years ago, when he was 21 years old, he started working in pickle shops. I've worked for some of the old timers like Gus Pickles, El Hollander and Son, Lou the Pickle Man, and Bloomfields. The old timers got too old. There's nothing really to sell. You can't sell you know, an empty barrel. There's no machinery or anything. So they would just say, listen, you know, we're going to close up. Do you want to take over? And we're retiring. They left and there's either I do this or no more pickle store. <laughs> and that would be the end of a dynasty. And I consider this to be like a living museum. You know, it's a art form. I've personally served three generations of, of families. Alan owns the Pickle Guys, the last remaining pickle shop in Manhattan. He is still on the Lower East Side, just about a block from his first pickle job. We're the last of the last. We still do it the original way. No machines. Everything's done by hand. All you need to work here is a strong back and a weak mind. A pickle for a brain. That's it. He says back in the day, there weren't pickle shops, just pickle push carts. But Mayor LaGuardia, you may recognize the name from the airport, outlawed the carts in the 1960s. And then the pickle barrels were outlawed in 1974. So you can't use wooden barrels because you can't clean them anymore. They're plastic barrels now. The process takes a little bit longer because the bacteria was already in the wooden barrels, so it would start faster. As far as flavor-wise, it tastes pretty much the same. You don't pick up the oak flavor or anything like that. And it's real simple. We take a barrel of water, we add salt to it, we pour the salt water on top of the cucumbers, and then we add pickling spices, which is coriander seeds, bay leaves, mustard seeds, uh, black peppercorns, dry peppercorns, juniper berries, and then a lot of garlic. And then we let it sit there. Depending on how long it sits, you'll get a different pickle. The pickle guys sell eight kinds of cucumber pickles, starting with young pickles that are bright green and have only been sitting in the brine for about a week, all the way to the full sours that sit for three months. Now, all their cucumber pickles are made with a 110-year-old recipe that has been passed down through the pickle shops over the years to Alan. But Alan and his two co-workers have expanded into making 45 different kinds of pickles. Pickled mango, pickled watermelon, pickled pineapples, Okra, stream beans. Alan was stoked to find out that Mayim is also a pickle person. Big fan. I love her old show. Oh, Blossom? (laughs) Blossom is good, but I was thinking Big Bang Theory. Love that show. And Alan just might love pickled tomatoes as much as Mayim does. A pickled tomato is an old traditional item. It's actually, it's a green unripened tomato. And we pickle it with salt water, vinegar, garlic, dill, and pickling spices. And it takes about two months to fermentate. It's going to be crunchy and crispy like an apple, but it's going to taste sour like a pickle. Me personally, when I was a kid, my mom would bring it home from the supermarket on Saturday. And by Saturday night, I ate it all. (laughs) And she would yell at me like, where's the tomatoes? I just keep quiet. (laughs) 
<laughs> We've talked before in a past episode about how to get the perfect bite of food. You want something crispy, contrasted with something creamy, something hot with something cold. And pickles do the heavy lifting when it comes to balancing out a meal. When I lived in Japan, I loved the fluorescent yellow half moons of pickled daikon radish. These were always served with a traditional Japanese breakfast. So I would take a sip of salty miso soup. I would take a bite of rice, maybe a bite of the broiled salmon, and then it would all get brightened up and my appetite would get invigorated with a little bite of pickle. And in the course of putting together this episode, I have been eating pickles straight out of the jar at my desk while I'm producing. So I have a feeling that some of you, maybe a lot of you, have a pickle in your very near future. When we come back, Mayim and I will be talking about eating disorders. So if you're sensitive to the topic, you can skip that section. Fast forward to 2808 and rejoin the episode there. Mayim wrote a cookbook called Mayim's Vegan Table, and she has a YouTube channel with over a million followers where she posts these really charming, entertaining cooking tutorials filmed in her home kitchen. And when I was looking through the videos, I noticed that a lot of the recipes, most of the recipes are for Ashkenazi Jewish holiday dishes. What is your favorite holiday food wise? Um, oh, great question. Um, well, you know, you really can't beat Sufganyot, which is a fried donut, you know, which we have at Hanukkah time. There's nothing like eating those the day that you make them. Um, they're absolutely delicious. It's a vegan donut and it's a marvelous thing. Um, latkes also, I mean, you know, frying potatoes and onions is never a bad idea. But I will say that actually the next holiday that's coming up is Shavuos, which is um, connected with receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, we eat blintzes typically at midnight. And it is not easy to make vegan blintzes, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> she has a cookbook, the cooking videos, a deep love for pickly things. It's obvious that Mayim is passionate about her love of food. But her relationship with food is complicated. On a recent episode of her podcast, Mayim Bialik's Breakdown, she was in conversation with the writer Glennon Doyle. And without planning on it, she revealed that she's been in recovery for an eating disorder over the last couple years. After you spoke with her and did that episode, how did you feel? Was there a freedom in letting this no, out? I felt yucky. Uh, I mean, it was really, no, I mean, I don't feel like bad. I didn't feel regret, but it's a lot of attention, which it's not like I'm stupid. I, I, I realized that talking about it might get attention, but of course, yeah, seeing it in the press and like, of course it made me self-conscious and it made me worried that people would be like, oh, that's why she looks like that. Or, you know, all that, all that judgment-y stuff, which, you know, a lot of us grow up with no matter what size we are. Um, it was a very honest admission because if I'm requiring, you know, guests to be vulnerable with me and especially Glennon, who's made a career of how vulnerable one can be, I felt like, why would I be ashamed? It doesn't mean that I don't feel shame, but there's nothing to be ashamed about. And I think there's also this notion of like celebrities shouldn't have problems or we don't want to hear about their problems. And I totally get it. You know, when I was a kid, I thought once I hit like 30, then you just live life and like everything's yeah. great. Yeah. And here I am at 45, like, oh my gosh, like you can acquire an eating disorder at 40. Okay, like let's do this life. <laughs> Is there a kind of a mourning around this idea that you will lose this relationship with food? that you love? Um, 
No, I think, you know, honestly, what I would love to, you know, be rid of is the obsession surrounding what I look like and how it relates to food. And like, I'm a smart person who can convince myself that maybe I gained five pounds overnight. Like, could that have happened? Or like this fit yesterday, I must have gained. I mean, it's like those things don't even make sense. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I would love, you know, to have released, to be able to really not connect my food with my body and my food with my weight. I want to make reasonable and healthy decisions without making it about, and then I'm going to have the body I always wanted and then I'll be loved. You know, yeah. it's like kind of teasing all of that apart. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much. Thanks for being honest and vulnerable. And it was such a joy to talk with you. And I love Thank your you. podcast. You're such a good host. I mean, I know you're an entertainer, but like Thank you. you're such a natural and I really love it. Thank you. Well, I will tell my partner, Jonathan Cohen, who tells me that I interrupt too much and people are complaining about it. So I will, uh, I will tell him that Rachel says I'm fine. You are fine. You are. And you know, unorthodox podcast, yeah. they've made it a fact that Jews interrupt more, so we can't help it. He's Jewish. I don't know why he's Canadian. That must be why they That's don't probably do why. And that was my Bialik's last meal. Mayim's new show is Call Me Cat. She plays Cat, with a K, a woman who runs a cat cafe, and why didn't they cast me for this dream roller? Maybe I just want that to be my real life. You can also check out her podcast, Mayim Bialik's Breakdown. Thanks to my pickle posse, Jan Davison, author of Pickles, A Global History, and Alan Kaufman, owner of The Pickle Guys. They ship pickles anywhere in the U.S., so if you want to try the pickled tomatoes that Mayim and Alan love so much... Look them up. I'm sure people who are visiting love to come in and meet you because they feel like they're having a real New York experience getting to talk to oh, you. They love, they love my accent. They really do. Most of the time people will say to me, come on, say it. No, I don't want to say it. Come on, say it. No, I don't want to say it. Come on, say it. All right, coffee. And I get coffee. Come on, say it again, coffee. <laughs> Your Last Meal is produced by Laura Scott and me. Theme music by Prom Queen. If you're not already, make sure you're following along on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell. That's B-E-L-L-E. And if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, help us out by leaving a review. It actually does help to get the podcast out to more people. The latest review comes from Cher the Bear, who says she loves the podcast because it's, quote, a nice break from changing poopy diapers and playing with sticky superheroes. I love that alliteration, Cher the Bear. And I am always happy to be the antidote to poop. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're going to end a food podcast with the word poop. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Poop.